Good morning. We are pausing in our series in the book of Psalms, and this morning I'd love for you to take your Bibles now and, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. And we're looking and exploring Matthew 27, 32 through 51. And what I would love to do with you is to walk you down what we might call the Via Dolorosa. And this is the path that Jesus took on his way to the cross where he came to die for your sins and to die for my sins. And the words uh, Via Dolorosa mean literally the way of suffering. And so if you would find your way to Matthew chapter, chapter 27 and verse 32, I'd love to read to you because this will allow for us to prepare our hearts for the bread and for the cup that uh, we'll be experiencing in the coming moments. And as they went out, they found a man of uh, Cyrena, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, well, they offered him wine to drink and mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Well, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You... You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, they said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And so Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 
And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. It's extraordinary. Let's look to our Lord together. So, Father, what we want to do now is to take this road slowly, surely, reflectively, making our way to the cross where Jesus would die for our sins. Distinguished from those, one to the left and one to the right. This was the sinless one dying for the sinful ones. So we want to be able, Father, to understand the significance and enter into this this movement toward the cross with reverence and giving you, Father, all praise and glory for what took place. So, Father, now, warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills, as again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Join me. We're going to make our way into Jerusalem now. You've landed in Tel Aviv, and we've gathered together uh, at the Via Della Rosa. And here's a picture of the Via Della Rosa that appears on the screen. And what stands out immediately to me, if you are joining me at this point, is that the path to the cross is rather narrow. And now, it's not to say that it's not crowded. Uh, it's an extraordinarily congested setting where people are slowly making their way across what are known as 14 stations of the cross. And we're going to explore a few of those in our moments together leading to the bread and the cup. But what I want you to sense at this moment is that the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering, it is a narrow path, it is a guided path, it's a directed path, and it's the path that we would find ourselves taking as we make our way toward Golgotha. So what I want to do is to take this passage of scripture that we're pondering today and look at it four sections, if you will, helping us to better understand how to approach the death of Jesus Christ in a way that will bring added significance to partaking of the bread and partaking of the cup together. We are on the Dia Via Della Rosa. We're picking it up in verse, in verse 32. And in verse 32, you and I are told that as they went out, speaking of Jesus and those that were part of the process of making certain he would make his way to the cross. Well, they found a man of Cyrena, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. Now, what captures my attention at this point is that this man is from Cyrena, which is part of Libya. And so, this man from that region of Africa, uh, that region is listed, in fact, in Acts chapter 2 and verses 1 through 10. 
We're on the day of Pentecost, where all of a sudden we find that various languages are being spoken so that the gospel can be communicated and people who are celebrating uh, that day can go back and share the good news of Christ in the various languages that they had possessed. Well, one of those language groups was from Cyrena, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 2 of verse 10. Simon was from that very region. In fact, church history tells us, in fact, that Simon's sons were pillars of the church in the early days of, uh, of the ministry subsequent to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This would have impact. This tells us, then, that this was not an accident in time. This was an appointment with time where we have a sense of convergence now as Simon, who thought he was just there to be able to celebrate Passover with other pilgrims, finds himself instead in a situation where in this congested setting, lo and behold, and the Romans seize him. They compelled him to carry his cross. And this was the right of the Roman, where if they saw someone they considered to have committed a crime and making his way toward crucifixion, if he could no longer do so under conscription, Roman soldiers would then take an individual and then that individual would be forced to be able to carry one of the two members of the cross. The two members of the cross were the vertical beam and the horizontal beam. The vertical beam for Christ was already implanted into the ground. The horizontal beam was meant for him to carry where he would then be attached. But you see, at this point, due to the whippings and floggings and so on, he's no longer able to physically carry on that beam. Simon now, ironically, becomes his substitute. Though in reality, Jesus, in turn, would become Simon's substitute. Simon would become Jesus' substitute in carrying the cross to Golgotha, Jesus would be Simon's substitute, dying on that cross for Simon. The irony of substitutions at work here. If you are with me on the Via Della Rosa, we've made our way to Station 5. Appears on the screen at this point. And there, again, it's crowded. I would love to be able to open up the scriptures for you and be able to pause at this point and explain what we have just covered in just one verse thus far. Reality is, is that I would be shouting over the crowds. It's so loud, so densely packed. We would have a hard time being able to hear the person next to us, let alone somebody teaching God's word in front of you. But this is known as Station 5 of the 14 stations of the Via Dolorosa. This is the setting where Simon would be the physical substitute for Jesus carrying the beam of the cross to Golgotha. Jesus, in turn, would be the ultimate substitute for Simon, dying on that cross to save Simon and you and me from our sins. 
But now you're up to verse 33. And you and I are told at this point, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Now, notice that this is called Golgotha, means the place of a skull. Uh, if we were considering the word Calvary, which is a Latin word, uh, this is the word for the skull. Cranium is a close word to identify with. What I want you to understand at this point is that Calvary, Golgotha, however you want to view it, is the convergence point, past, present, future, for all people, past, present, and future. This is where life makes sense. This is where we begin to understand that there is such a thing as sin in this world. But rather than feeling a sense of despair over all things going on in this world, consider the deliverance that's offered to this world where Jesus Christ becomes the ultimate substitute, dying in our place for our, for our sins. He's offered wine to drink mixed with gall. When he tasted it, he would not drink it. Why? He's allowing for himself in the midst of his sufferings, dying in our place for our sins, to have the full sensory experience of being our substitute, to be able to fully embrace what it means to be the suffering servant described in Isaiah chapter 55, 53 rather. So with that being said, come with me now, we've inched forward still more, and we go and we position ourselves at Golgotha. It appears on the screen once again. And as you look at Golgotha at this point, you can begin to understand a little bit in terms of the configuration where they would come up with the idea, whether it be the Aramaic Golgotha or the Latin Calvary, that there's this understanding of a skull that seems to emerge in the midst of the rocks. It's found there. You pause. Jesus would be positioned on a cross in the midst of a busy tourist time period, Passover, God was allowing for all this to take place. The Romans wanted to make absolutely certain that anybody who is viewed as a, one who committed treason against the Roman Empire in general, emperor in particular, would be made of a public display so that in turn, when people on their pilgrimages would return to their natural settings, they would shudder at the thought of going against Rome. Otherwise, they would experience the same. So the purpose then for the Roman political system was to make a, a spectacle, a public display. This is what happens when you revolt. What God is doing at the same time is sovereignly superintending all of these events, working with both religious unbelievers and secular unbelievers, allowing for such a thing to be viewed 
so that people would begin to grasp the significance of what occurs when all of a sudden the skies darken, the earth shakes, and a cry is uttered for ears to hear. What's going on here? Golgotha. Substitution. Christ dying in your place. Dying in my place. For our sins. We're told that they sat down and kept watch over him there. History tells us that in prior times, Roman soldiers would typically get up to leave. Work done, you see. But then they found that those who had committed treason against the Roman Empire, once the soldiers left, friends would in turn go up and then retrieve that person, taking them down from the cross, because in some cases, such a person resuscitated. God and his sovereign purposes is allowing for the soldiers to remain put because they know that if this person did not die, they would die. Their purpose was to make absolutely certain that the ones who commit treason passed away. This is God's doings. For you see, he is now allowing for witnesses, vested interest in making certain, these soldiers, that Christ died. This eliminates, then, all arguments that he was resuscitated when he came to, so to speak, within the grave. So much for the swoon theory, argumentation. So God, knowing that, he allows for these with vested interest, making certain that Christ died, otherwise they would die, to be there to witness the fact that Jesus Christ had breathed his last. Hmm. This is how God works. He's not hindered by religious unbelievers. He's not hindered by secular unbelievers. He's not hindered by the circumstances of life. And he chose a particular time when Roman soldiers would in fact remain put rather than leave the setting. What are they doing? Well, as they position themselves, and they keep watch, lo and behold, they're doing so in a setting where they are casting lots with regard to his garments. Come with me to station 10. Station 10 is such where you and I find that this is the setting where Jesus would have been stripped of his garments. Now, can you imagine the emotions within his mother's heart? Mary would be saying to herself, those are the garments that I wove together for my son. You feel now the sense of despair. But while she might be feeling despair, God is prepping Jesus for deliverance. Second member of the Trinity, guided by the first member of the Trinity. They are... They are dividing his garments. They are casting lots, you see, because the pay system was such that this offered them added opportunity. It was like a tip, if you will. Some extra bonus for doing their work according to the legal system. So they sat down, kept watch there. But while they're keeping watch over Jesus, so is God the Father. 
And while lower authority thinks they're keeping watch, higher authority has complete watch. They're watching him. God is watching over him. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. The name Jesus means literally Yahweh saves. We'll come back to that in just a second. But when they put this charge over his head, they did so in three different languages. And so now, it being Passover, when these people then would return from their pilgrimages, they would have been introduced to the claim that this secular unbeliever, Pietus Pilate, had placed over the head of Jesus, much to the consternation of the religious unbelievers in the Sanhedrin and the other forces at work within Jerusalem. They didn't want any such thing being spoken of that Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews, you see. Pilate overruled. Or did God the Father overrule Pilate, who overruled the Sanhedrin? And who is in charge here anyways? God the Father is making absolutely certain that everything is going according to plan at this point in time. He does the same today, you know. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's in charge. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews, which is exactly how we tied together Psalm 92 through 100, and the nine Yahweh Malik Psalms. The Lord is king. But now you and I, we have moved into our second section, and you're picking it up with me, aren't you? You're up to... You're up to verse 38. And now in verse 38, we're told that there's these two robbers who were crucified with him. One on the right, one on the left. Oh, God has a way of dividing humanity, doesn't he? Because we're going to come to understand that one of these robbers had, in fact, um, come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Not immediately but watching how Jesus responded to the sufferings being placed upon him on the cross. You see, the one in the middle died for sins. The one on one side died in sins. The one on the other side died to sin. What they shared in common, death. Death is separation. But what God is going to do is produce resurrection in the midst of this matter of separation. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him. They are they're wagging their, their heads at this point. But didn't God promise that in the Psalms with regard to the way in which people were going to be reacting? In Psalm 22, verse 7, we're told that, that this one who would die would die in the midst of those that were, that were in opposition to all things according to God's will. In verse 40, a claim is being made. 
And the claim is this. The ones wagging their heads are saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Break it down with me. Why, didn't Jesus in John 2, after having cleansed the temple, say, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up? And then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? Question. Hmm. But he was speaking about the temple of his body, John writes. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture, the word that Jesus had spoken. And now what we find is that others are in essence testifying as to what it was that Jesus had said. You're going to notice with me now that as we append this in our bulletin inserts this morning, this entire section is, is marked with irony. Matthew guides us along this path known as the Via Dolorosa. We're pondering the ridicule Christ faced, the ironies they produced. He was mocked for claiming to be a king, yet he was the king. He's taunted to save himself, yet he died to save us. From the sixth to the ninth hour, he'd be cloaked in darkness. The one who is the light of the world. Are you capturing with me now the ironies of the Via Dolorosa? And what's transpiring here? You who would destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. And this is interesting. Because there's irony here. Their idea of salvation is self-preservation. Christ's idea of salvation is self-substitution. You see, the temptation was for him to save himself. Come down from the cross. But he was committed to do the will of the Father, as declared in the Garden of Gethsemane. He remained on the cross to save you and to save me. What incredible preparation for the bread and for the cup. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. But people, do you remember something? In Matthew chapter 4, in the earlier stages of Matthew's writings, when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus responded with Scripture. Second temptation, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He'll command His angels concerning you. What we're arguing for at this point is that you connect the dots between the wilderness temptations that are being produced by the evil one overtly at the beginning of his earthly ministry 
And now the temptations being delivered by the evil one covertly at the ending of Christ's earthly ministry. And what they share in common is this idea of prove yourself. Become the evidentialist for us. If, if, but isn't that exactly what the evil one said in Matthew 4 in the wilderness, the temptation? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And the temptation in the wilderness is being, in essence, replicated at the wilderness of the cross. You're up to the third section, verses 41 down through verse 44. And so also now, you see, they're not the only ones. The chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they mocked him. What are they saying? Back to the same word again. The idea of salvation. Do you see the irony here? Their idea of salvation is self-preservation. His idea of salvation is self-substitution. He saved others. They, they're now going to acknowledge that. They have heard of the miracles. But now they introduce an in inability. He cannot save himself. I would say he had the ability, but what he lacked was the willingness because he came to do the will of the Father. He's not going to do the will of the populace that are standing around him. He's going to do the will of the Father who is reigning over at this point. He's the king of Israel. They're going to say him mockingly because they're frustrated with the fact that the placard is written in three different languages right above Christ's head. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. And what we've got are a lot of people that are what I will call um, unbelieving evidentialists who's saying, if you will do this, if you will get me this job, then I'll believe in you. If you will help me overcome this particular illness, I'll believe in you. These are various substitutionary forms of evidence. So the temptation is here. Okay? It's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. Then we'll believe in him. They even introduce trust. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. Almost mockingly, they would add at this point, if he desires him. Oh, the Father desires the Son. For he said, I am the Son of God. Did you notice the repeated emphasis upon the Son of God? Well, now, not to be outdone, the robbers are also going to weigh in. And so the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him, we are told, in the same way. They're taking their lead, you see, from the religious leaders at this point. You're up to the fourth stanza. It's powerful. 
Beginning in verse 45. What you and I are now told is that it is now the sixth hour. And there was darkness over all the land until the ninth. I want you to start here in this section by noting with me what I'll call a significant darkness. It's not supposed to get dark at 12 noon and last until 3 in the afternoon. What's the reason? Jesus stripped down, finds that what God is now doing is clothing him with darkness. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God clothed them in their sinful state. Here now, upon the cross, God the Father is clothing Jesus in his sinless state. You are going to be reduced to the audible, audio only verbal expression because visual will no longer be available to you. He has, God the Father has reduced them, the sensory perception of what is occurring here down to words. They're not going to be able to visualize all the various uh, aspects of suffering upon that cross. This is extraordinary. Because there are other aspects of Christendom that go out of their way to be able to uh, describe in detail the, the goriness of the cross. But what I want to say here is that there, there's verbal restraint, whether it be earlier aspects in which we are simply told that he was crucified. Now what we find is this. For three hours... People are going to have to simply concentrate on what he says. They're not able to take into account what they see. God is narrowing the focus. He has a way of doing that, you know. You're up to verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Ponder that. The one who lacked the physical wherewithal to carry the horizontal beam to the cross is given extraordinary stamina by God the Father to be able to vocalize what comes next in these verses. Because we're not told he merely whispered. In verse 46, we're informed that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Astoundingly, upon the cross of Jesus Christ, we move from not merely the significant darkness to the extraordinary cry and we begin to ponder, what is it that Jesus is truly saying here? A few thoughts emerge. First, he is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. In Psalm 22, verse 1, these very verses, these very words were being uttered 
written by David. Now, the average Jew would say, well, God would never abandon his king. The irony is, and we're back to more ironies, what Jesus Christ is doing now by quoting David in Psalm 22, verse 1, is that he is saying, in essence, I'm of the line of David. Just as David would cry this, so I now on this cross cry this. But furthermore, what I want us to be able to understand is this. Throughout the Gospels, when Jesus Christ is speaking to the first member of the Trinity, 170 times the reference is Father. There is only one instance where the first member of the Trinity in Christ's prayers is referred to as my God. It's here. Why? Can I build for us another what I will call a triangle of truth? We've done that in Psalm 92 to 100. The first and the last statements on the cross began with the word Father. First statement, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Number one. Seventh statement, final statement, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Now, he starts with Father, first statement, then a second, then a third. When he gets to the fourth statement, which is what I will call the peak of the triangle, the pinnacle, now instead he says, my God, my God. Why? Because at this point, what he is doing is emphasizing that this is a judicial matter. God is executing justice. What God is doing now is that he is allowing for the sins of the world to be paid for by the sinless one on the cross. There is distancing occurring here at this point. First member, second member of the Trinity in ways, the mystery of the Trinity, we will never fully be able to comprehend. But my God, not my Father, my God, and then for repetition purposes, my God, the classic why have you forsaken me, as he quotes from David, and now the ultimate David is on that cross. What do you do with all this? You've built the triangle of truth, fathers at both ends at the base, and my God at the pinnacle. Take a deep sigh here, okay? Now verse 47. It's dark, you know. They're left merely processing words at this point. But some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. When one of them at once ran, took a sponge, filled it with a sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink. Contrast, 49. But the others said, wait, 
Let's see whether Elijah will come to, here it is again, ironies, save. To save him. They're not getting it, are they? He came not to be saved. He came to save. You've spotted the significant darkness. You've pondered now the extraordinary cry. What I want you to be able to furthermore be able to process here is the unit spirit. Because for a second time now, you and I are informed that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. Where does this stamina come from? Oh, we know. We know. We're dealing with the Godhead here. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and what I want you to notice next is this. He's in complete charge. Yielded up his spirit. It doesn't say that his spirit left him in a passive way. No, in a directive way, volitionally, he yielded up his spirit. My gracious, he is sovereign on the cross. You've seen the significant darkness, the extraordinary cry, the yielded spirit, all within this fourth section. But furthermore, check out 51. Behold, and you smile at this point because nobody can behold. It's dark. He's using a visual to communicate the verbal and again utilizing irony. This is brilliant. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom the torn curtain. And what captures your attention is the movement of the tearing. It's not from bottom to top, which would be an illustration of human effort trying to do this. Top down. This is God sovereignly at work, opening up the curtain of the temple, saying that Jesus Christ's body is the temple, the temple was the convergence point where sacrifice and substitution would take place. And now is the ultimate form of substitution. All the lambs that were being sacrificed during the days of Passover are indicative of the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The temple is now experiencing the tearing by which the curtain is torn. No lamb prior could ever do this, but the ultimate one does, top to bottom. And then one final aspect of this fourth section. The earth shook. The rocks were split. And when this occurs at this point, what God is doing is he's prepping and connecting because there was an earthquake that took place at the time of crucifixion. But people, there was an earthquake that also took place at the time of resurrection. 
what God is now doing is making what I will call a seismic statement. This is all about salvation on, God, on God's terms, not our terms. And so you take a look now at this visual that appears on the screen. Because lo and behold, God continues to make seismic statements. And there, this visual lightning over Jerusalem reminds us of the pivotal setting where the Son of God will someday return and set up his reign. And now, people, we're ready for the bread and the cup. And Father, praising you, thanking you for who you are. You allow for words to be communicated in the darkness an extraordinary cry of the why, quoting the scriptures, linking Christ to, the, to King David. The yielding of spirit where Jesus is in complete control to the very end. The tearing of the curtain from top to bottom. Earthquakes. Crucifixion and again resurrection. Your seismic statement. You are saying, I'm in charge. I am sovereign. And you and you alone deserve the glory. Which we offer to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. For which we praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.